right? This evening's New Testament scripture reading is from Acts chapter 5, verses 17 through 21a and 27 through 33. It is found on page 2 in your bulletin. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name, and yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at the right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. This is the word of the Lord. Would you join me as we pray? Father, uh, your word is enduring, and it is alive, it's powerful, and we pray that you would be merciful and let us hear your voice through your word, in Christ's name, and for his sake. Amen. Well, this evening, we are wrapping up a brief series on Christian faith in an election year. Believing that if we want to be agents of healing and not division, if we want to uh, have true religion and not have politics serve as our functional God, if we want to guard our own integrity, there's a few things we have to hold on to. And we started with this idea that, well, first we have to recall our state. And by state, what I meant was the state of our relationship to God, but not only to God, to one another. We just sang in that song this idea that... uh, of oneness, and I've been purchased by his blood, and that one with himself, I cannot die. But it's not just with himself, it's with one another. It's with everybody globally that professes his name. When that belief becomes more foundational and profound than any party belief, we can begin to do some good. Second of all, we have to recall our security that our hope does not rise and fall from election cycle to election cycle, but we find that we have a new confidence that can endure and deliver us from fear and desperation. But even if we've done all that, we can still fall short because the Christian faith calls us to more than commitment of the mind and commitment of the heart. It calls us to commitment of the will. To act, to recall our duty, 
And when you talk about duty, inevitably the question comes up, well, to what end do we align our effort? What's the target here? On one hand, you'll have those that say, well, where we need to put our effort into is transforming culture because culture is upstream from politics. And in the end, it's the art and it's the film and it's the education that wins the day. And no doubt there is much truth in that statement. I mentioned last week how Uncle Tom's cabin was so pivotal and addressing slavery in its day. But whether it's, you know, uh, what's going on by Marvin Gaye or I'm Proud to be American by Lee Greenwood, whatever it be, yes, culture has that power. But we would be short-sighted and misguided to think culture alone motivates that change. Because, in fact, when it came to racism, it was the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Act that enforced righteousness, that coerced righteousness. Laws do more than echo culture, right? They put into practice habits and ideas that create expectations. And for this reason, politics are essential. Out of the book City of Man by uh, Michael Gerson and Pete Weiner, they have this idea, this quote. The idea that people of faith can take a sabbatical from politics to collect their thoughts and lick their wounds is a form of irresponsibility. It is, in fact, an idea that could only be embraced by comfortable Christians. If one lives in a neighborhood plagued by poverty, dominated by gangs... Served by failing schools, there is no sabbatical from the failure of politics. Duty for Christians is not optional when it comes to that work, to our discipleship. But it comes with challenges, and there are two. One is the way that Christian duty is politicized. So, for instance, you might go to a church, and you might hear that the sermon is on Uh, systemic racism and oppression of the poor or distribution of wealth. And many Christians would conclude, well, this must be a progressive or liberal church. Or you might go to another church and hear them preach about defense of the unborn or capital punishment, and the conclusion would be, well, this must be a conservative church. But the truth is there's biblical warrant for all of that. You find all of that represented in Scripture An indication that Christians are more immersed in politics than the Bible is the fact that when we hear those issues, immediately we think politically and not biblically. And the result is it actually narrows down what God has called us to do. Things are left undone that should be done. But second of all, the other challenge is to oversimplify Christian duties. That is to say, well... Christians that are faithful govern this way. This is what it must look like, as if issues are always simple. Now, if anybody ought to understand how entrenched and how complex and how deep the problems are that we face in this nation and society, it ought to be Christians. Because their theology, as Andrew said earlier, the grand story. It's Christian theology that teaches the world isn't bruised, it's broken. 
It's Christian theology that teaches that the great adversary, the devil, isn't a novice at evil. He's a master at evil. It's Christian theology that teaches that our pride isn't a kitten. It's a roaring lion. And so it ought to lead us to not oversimplify or easily demonize other people or elect politicians hoping they'll be magicians. As one quote says, and I think accurately, politics is, politics is a profession of trial and error, of adjustment and readjustment, no magic formula. But more so, it ought to lead for Christians to be self-reflective and humble. Because the bad stuff isn't just out there, it's in here. The tendency, every tendency I might see in the world and pin upon my enemy, the seed of it lives in my breast. And if I take an honest look at myself, I probably see it regularly in my heart. Can we be humble? Can we pray like the great politician of the Bible, King David? Who can discern his errors? Show me my hidden faults. But even with these two challenges... God always gives sufficient grace. He always gives more because he loves his people and he gives us guidance. And I think one of the helpful themes that we get, which runs from the beginning of the Bible all the way to the end, is a theme of God's people as prophets, priests, and kings. If you go to the Old Testament you find that there were three offices in Israel, right? Prophets, priests, and kings. But they were always pointing somewhere else. The New Testament says they were pointing to a great prophet, a great priest, a great king, Jesus Christ. You know, he would be the one through his teaching and then through the apostles bring the final word. He would be the one that would give his own life to remove the guilt of his people. He would be the one that would rule over storms and over evil spirits. But even that, prophet, priest, and king didn't end when Jesus died, resurrected, and went to heaven. It actually continues on in the life of his people, in his church. Because as the book of Acts tells us, the church is the continuing ministry of Jesus Christ. You see this in the early church in what was called Pentecost. Where Jesus Christ shares his anointing. When the Holy Spirit falls upon his people that believe, he shares the anointing he had as the prophet, priest, and king. The historic Heidelberg Catechism speaks to this with a lot of insight. It says that believers share this anointing. They confess his name as prophets. They're living sacrifices as priests. And they strive against sin and evil as kings. And while multiple passages in the Bible could serve to demonstrate this, I think we get enough of a glimpse at it with Acts 5. And as always, a little context helps here. Now, the early church sat in a unique place politically. You might say that their federal government was imperial Rome. Their local government was actually the Jewish Sanhedrin. And Rome purposely set it up this way because they felt like they would have more control if they gave local power to communities. And you see this reflected in uh, the trial of Jesus. Jesus is tried by the Jewish Sanhedrin. Here in the passage, uh, they're referred to as the Senate. 
But then he is sentenced by Pilate. And so, as we come to this passage, the early Christians had to navigate with a lot of wisdom in their political relationships because the dynamics were complex. And yet in this passage, we find how they would relate as prophet, priest, and king. So let's look at that, those three things with the time we have remaining. First of all, the duty to be prophetic. One of the best modern examples we might have of this is Dr. Martin Luther King. He said, the church must be reminded that it is not the master or the servant of the state, but rather the conscience of the state. It must be the guide and the critic of the state and never its tool. Now, here in this passage, we see a model. The early Christians, they're arrested for preaching, ordered to stop, delivered miraculously. But then they go on to preach again. And then we find, right, they're strictly charged not to teach in his name. But then Peter answers, we must obey God rather than men. You notice their response isn't disrespectful, but it's very forthright. Uh, Peter delivers a prophetic word to the local governing powers over him. He speaks a word to them of truth. And in that, he's fulfilling a long line of prophets. In the Bible, uh, one categoriz- uh, categorization of prophets is this, that there were wilderness prophets, like John the Baptist, and those that were far away from power. And there were court prophets, those that were close to power, like Nathan to David. But even wilderness prophets, or rather, even court prophets, had to keep a little wilderness in them. They had to keep distance if they were going to be effective. Because they were tempted in the same way that Christians are tempted today. One, to edit their message to gain favor. Another would be to use truth to serve their own agenda instead of the common good. But thirdly, a failure to speak truth even to their own. When you look at the prophets, you see that this was one of their greatest burdens. It wasn't speaking truth to the pagan world. It was speaking truth to their own people. That was the first prophetic call. Some of you may have read a transcript of the recent prayer breakfast. And one of the speakers was Arthur Brooks who's a social scientist and a faculty member at Harvard. And he was recounting a lesson he learned from his father and said, in a free society where you do not fear being locked up for opinions, true moral courage isn't standing up to people with whom you disagree. It's standing up to the people with whom you agree on behalf of those with whom you disagree. Isn't that sometimes the hardest, right? Sometimes the hardest thing to do is to speak truth to those that are closest to us. And I'll tell you, God has a way where he just, he, he will test us in the most vulnerable moments. I've seen this over and over again. Where maybe, you know, my connection with someone is just going so great. And I'm just like, you know, this is wonderful. You know, this, is, this means so much to me, this connection. And all of a sudden they say something that I know is at odds with what's true. And there Jesus comes in and says, I'm going to test your loyalty a little bit here to see whom you serve. And to fail the test is essentially to become a false prophet. The mark of false prophets were that they would proclaim peace, peace when there wasn't peace. 
They were peace fakers. They wanted peace to serve their own agenda. They wanted to not speak up or say something because they thought, well, you know, it's not a good time. But right now we've got the advantage, whatever it would be. I was uh, uh, chatting with one of the women in our church who was in the City of God reading group. And she recently shared a a passage with me uh, where Augustine, St. Augustine, he's referring to the universal desire for peace that we all have. But he says it's corrupted. And one of the ways it shows its corruption is we hate the just peace of God and we love our own unjust peace. I mean, I don't even need to go into politics to see that, right? I mean, there's all that, all of us have that little hobbit in us. We just want to keep life secure and peace for how it works out for us. Uh, One journalist, uh, E.J. Dion, said this, It's a useful rule that when our religion, when our religion's faith tells us to do the thing that would be easy and convenient, we are almost certainly mistaking the voice of our own self-interest for the voice of God. I don't pretend to have any certainty about when our thoughts really are divinely inspired. But I suspect that this is more likely to be true when a quiet religious voice asks us to do the hard thing. Can you imagine the temptation it was to these guys to keep peace? I mean, Peter references in verse 30, this was the very group of people that had orchestrated the execution of Jesus. They didn't need evidence of how bad it could get. Can you imagine the great temptation it would be to say, Let's just try to walk the line carefully and not be too prophetic. In fact, not long before that, they were hidden in a room, right? Locked behind a door. But what happened? The anointing of the Holy Spirit came. Listen, we're not up to the task. I'm not up to the task to be the prophet that I should be. Sometimes it's easier to speak to you all than it is my neighbor. But guess what? God has given the Holy Spirit... God has given the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we can rise up and be faithful. You know, I would say that in the last two administrations, uh, you know, here's here's some evidence I've seen of this. In the last administration, when President Obama, who's a professing Christian, gave his support to gay marriage, there were a group of African-American pastors that uh, formed a coalition and actually opposed him on that issue even though historically they were democratic. Because they felt their own biblical convictions would need to call them to be prophetic. It wasn't a very popular thing for them to do at that time. In this administration, there have been conservatives, journalists, elected officials that time have felt called to say that uh, the behavior of the current president, what he says, is immoral. It's inappropriate. It's not biblical. I was at a breakfast with one of them, and I was listening closely, and he said, um, you know, there's a way that you can hold on to your principles, yet at the same time, speak out. You can do both. You can do both. Now, listen, I know for many of you where your livelihoods are, you know, uh, called into this, I don't pretend to know what it's like in your arena day to day. We need to pray for you. That call to say, when when do I speak up prophetically? When do I choose my battles? Christians need wisdom. The only people that are going to be simplistic about that are people that aren't doing that work. Right? 
But for all of us, at some point, you will be called to stick your neck on the line because they stuck stuck their neck on the line politically. They had to. The duty to be prophetic. Secondly, and these will be more brief, duty to be priestly. Now, priests, their main job was to offer grace through the administration of sacrifices. That's what they did. Hours and hours of it. And so when the great high priest comes, Jesus Christ, he offers grace by administering the great sacrifice, the sacrifice of his life. That guilt might be removed. That people might experience forgiveness. Priestly duty is holding out the mercy and grace of God. We were just in pre-service prayer. And by the way, you're welcome to come to that. That's not like a holy huddle. Uh, you know, I, I, if you're here early and you see a couple people go back there, just come on back. You know, strength in numbers. But uh, one of the brothers uh, praying, uh, and he was not a pastor or an elder, okay? He read from the scripture, and uh, he read from Peter, and it was very powerful. In fact, afterward, I was like, maybe we ought to have him preach tonight. Maybe he ought to get up there and bring the word. But one of the things he said was, you know, out of the passage, you were people that had not received mercy, but now you have. And I thought, yes, you know, we are called to extend mercy in our priestly duty. And you hear that even with Peter. Now, you know, he brings the kingly, which we'll get to in a second. He speaks out and says, listen, you orchestrated the murder of this man. But then in the same breath, he says, God has done this to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. He's saying there is grace for you too. And how poignant it is that Peter's the one saying it, because Peter's the one that had denied his faith and had been restored by Jesus. He was an example of mercy. We live in cancel culture, right? You mess up, you offend me, you're written off, you're canceled. There's no redemption for you. Christians can represent another culture, another sort of thing, a role of a mediator. While the temptation is to delight in our opponent's downfall and to even wish for it and maybe even work for it, God would call us to offer something else. You know, I I often wonder about the people that have been canceled by culture. Where are they? I guess they just sort of slide off into some place and try to live. Just remember that's where God found you. That's where he found me. It's this role of mediator. And it's not that we don't hold people accountable. We hold them accountable with grace. And if you're a living sacrifice, it may mean you suffer. I was reading one theologian on this issue of the way Christians engage with the culture. And he said, if you read the New Testament, what you come away with, it might be the greatest gift and role that Christians bring is to suffer. To suffer for the kingdom. I don't know about you, but I don't like that. You know, I'd rather be in power. I'd rather have the upper hand. But lastly, there is a kingly calling. Striving against sin, evil, and the devil. And it's not only uh, personally and individually. 
Because I think, you know, there's a wide part of the church that might say, yeah, we need to strive against sin. And immediately we think about it more personally and individually, but also corporately and socially and society. You see that reflected in the scripture. And it gets to this little sort of debate. When you get to the New Testament, it seems like the role of the government is mostly order and punishing wrongdoers. But I think in part that's because of the context of it. We're in a context, there's not a theocracy, right? We're in a pluralistic society, and it's sort of like, well, this is the minimum. At least they got to do this. But there was a bigger, broader vision you saw with the experiment of Israel. Although Israel failed, God's laws presented something that was more than just order and punishment. There was positive righteousness, positive justice. It was a beautiful picture that God put before us. And so what do we do? We hold people accountable for the minimum, but we strive for the ideal. We strive that what would be more because we see something ahead of us. Charles Matthews, in his book, he talks about the public good, and he gives some, I think, very practical examples. What does it look like for a Christian to engage in this kingly activity? He says, well, political actions such as voting, campaigning, running for office. You know, if, if those of you that work for campaigns, have you ever thought that, uh, boy, I'm doing something that pleases God? This is something spiritual? Can be. Can be. Running for office. Another be serving on a school board. These are less directly serving on a school board or planning commission, volunteering in a soup kitchen, speaking in a civic forum, or non-political behavior such as talking to one's family, friends, co-workers, or strangers about public matters of common concern. All of those can be considered kingly duty. Now, in the New Testament, you see different ways this was applied. The Apostle Paul, if we had time, we could see a time when he leverages his Roman citizenship for the good of the kingdom. He thinks this is wise. I'm a citizen. I'm going to leverage it because I think it's going to advance good and righteousness. But even in this passage, first of all, you find that they hold the leaders accountable. But second of all, and we didn't get to this passage, it ends by saying, and every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. They had a strategy. Right? They not only said we're going to continue doing what we're called to do, but they had a strategy and administration for how they were going to do good and bring light into the society. It wasn't just the preaching. It was also the works of justice and mercy that the church was doing. And I've already read a couple quotes the last couple weeks of how the uh, non-Christian, the pagan governments observed the way Christians operated. It puzzled them but it also inspired them. So, friends, we have a duty, a prophetic duty, a priestly duty, a kingly duty, and yet while politics is our duty, it is not our hope. I started this series by saying that I think a measure of the success of these three sermons is that I will have disappointed all of you. You know, you'll be like, yeah, I go, okay, yeah, I don't know about that. Well, right, this is the kingdom of God. Get used to disappointment. But I really do hope, I may need to qualify that statement. 
God doesn't disappoint, but he does disappoint us, right? Our expectations. But I hope I've done more than leave you with disappointment. I hope what you were drawn mostly to is a vision of another city. You know, I, I, when I walk around this uh, beautiful city, and I look at its monuments, and I look at its wonderful buildings, sometimes I can't help but think about another city. You know, a city whose architect is God. A city where uh, it'll be ruled by justice, and good news is the candidate has already been chosen and elected. He's already on the throne. In Washington, there's always been this struggle between, uh, you know, the beautiful city, that is the city that people want, maybe full of amenities, the city that I want that's going to serve me and make me go, yeah, I love this city. But then there's the just city. In heaven, there's no dichotomy between the two. The beautiful city is the just city. And so it's only as you and I fix our mind on that that we have both the grounding, the vision, the perseverance to keep moving ahead in the hard work that's before us and this calling that God has given to us. And it's a wonderful calling. It's wonderful that we can do it together. I hope that isn't lost upon us. Let's make efforts toward one another this way so we can move that way. Please join me as we pray. We do thank you, God, for uh, your wisdom and sovereignty in instituting the church, the family, and the state. And we pray for our uh, friends that labor, either directly or indirectly, in this work. We pray that you would renew them day to day. We pray that you would give them wisdom of how to exercise these roles. But we pray for all of us, Lord, because we're citizens. Give us help this year to take little steps of faith. God, we pray you would deliver us from idealism, cynicism, and despair. We pray that you would give us your spirit. And we pray that you would give us success. In Christ's name, amen.